0: Hello and welcome to The X-Man, Volume 5. I'm your host, Mr. Doc Coyle, here to bring you all the exploits of us quitters, those who got fired, those who just decided to, to move on in our lives and try new things. It's all about the transitions. Before we get started with our interview with Christian I also wanted to let everyone know that The X-Man is looking for sponsors. So if you would be interested in sponsoring the show, advertising, please hit me up via social media. I am at Dotcoil Coil on Twitter and Instagram. And also you can find me on Facebook. Just send me a message. Also bands that are looking to showcase their material, please hit me up. That counts as sponsorship as well. I'm not going to get too long-winded on this intro. I want to get right into our conversation with Mr. Christian Oldie-Wolbers of ex-Fear Factory member, ex-Archaia member. The guy's been a producer. He's played with so many different people, a really accomplished guy. And actually, it was pretty crazy how I got to meet him through god forbid's ex-manager who was managing fear factory at the time and so we had got to develop a relationship and then he also did some production work on the god forbid album earth's blood so he's a guy i've known for quite some time and it was always very surreal to finally become friends with uh, people you had previously idolized obviously coming from a band like fear factory that had so much impact over the the heavy metal scene so it's really awesome to be friends with him all these years and to me he is the exact type of person that we want on this show because he's done a lot and accomplished a lot and has been part of this heavy metal history but in that these scenarios get really sticky when bands split up and i think his story is super interesting to hear just as a forewarning, about an hour into the conversation, I would say things kind of veer to the left and uh, get off the music topic and kind of goes to a little more political realm. So if that's something that might bore you, uh, I would just to give you the heads up, that's where it kind of goes. If you want to cut it off that point, I would not uh, be offended. Anyway, enjoy my talk with Christian Oldie Wolbers. So we have our buddy Christian Old Wolbers. Am I pronouncing that right? No, no one pronounces it right, right? Well, you can say Oldie, Oldie. Yeah, like Oldie English, like the Old, liquor. You oldie, like... but thing is, you're you're from Belgium, right? Yes. So how if you
1: were so they speak French in Belgium in correct? the southern part they speak French and the the, uh, the northern part they speak Flemish. Flemish. I feel like Flemish, Flemish. I feel like people
0: forgot about Flemish. Like we don't talk about it anymore.
1: It's I mean, uh, they've been. It's, it's a culture that been uh, that's been. Uh, how would you say it? Kind of like uh, always overlooked. Yeah. In Europe, because people, most of the time, people go, "Where are you from?" Oh, Belgium. Oh, isn't that somewhere in Brussels? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it all, and I'm like, "No, man, I'm from Antwerp." Oh, where's that? That's in the north of Belgium. Oh, but do you speak there? Flemish. It's kind of like Dutch. Yeah. But you know, everybody knows Dutch, but. You know, Belgium is kind of squeezed in between France and the northern uh, neighbors, which is Holland. And then on the east, we have Germany. And the west, we have a channel, which is 30 miles long, which is the North Sea. And um, so on the west of Belgium, it's all beach from the top to the bottom. And when you cross it, you hit England. So how many languages do you speak? Um, Well, I speak Flemish, Dutch... I wouldn't really say it's two different languages, but um, for people from Belgium, from uh, the Flemish part of Belgium, when they really speak their accent, Dutch people have a hard time understanding us. Yeah. And they kind of make fun of us, but we make fun of them twice as hard. Yeah, that's a, that's and we a, can, that,
0: that is a European thing where people just hate on everyone who else is in the neighboring countries, right?
1: I wouldn't say hate. Uh, some do, but um, it's, it's uh, they. there's a lot of ball busting. Yeah. Like we... Bust the Dutch's balls all the time, like we call them cheeseheads. Cheeseheads, because they make all the cheese up there, so we call them cheeseheads. You know, just like Wisconsin. (laughs) So somebody has holes in their head, and it's just kind of like, no brain. It's a cheesehead. So, but I'm Dutch. I'm part Dutch. Okay. My dad was from Holland. My mom's from Belgium. And like maybe like ten years ago or something like that, I finally found out through my mom. She kind of like spilled the beans finally that my dad was a smuggler. And that's how she met him. A smuggler oh, of... Smuggling of, like, anything that was tax-free, duty-free back in those... You know, back in the 60s and the 70s, that was a big business. Mm-hmm. Anything that came off the docks of the shipyards and that was able to be sold without tax, like cigarettes and coffee, stuff like that. Yeah, My dad had connections, and he was involved in that scene, and I never really knew. And I always wondered, like, why do we have a new dishwasher? And my dad <laughs> and my dad would got drunk really bad, and then all of a sudden, the next day, there'd be, like, a new... microwave oven fuck I've never seen one of those wow you can actually stick something in there and that actually heats it up like the first time you ever saw one of those you know shit like that and then you know one day there's a TV in my room I'm like what the fuck this is some really expensive shit we don't have no money to buy this shit you know and then watching TV and my friends like some skate movies and my dad walks in in the room and just unplugs that thing and takes it and we're just like what the fuck and everybody looks at me He's like what the fuck did you do are you grounded or something? I'm like, no. My dad's like, I'll get you a new one later. I'm like, what? <laughs> Whatever. We go out to skate a couple days later. There's another TV in my room, a different one. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? You know what I mean? And all of a sudden, I got a VCR. All of a sudden, I had two VCRs. Like, everybody remembers that it was first coming VCR. from somewhere, and it wasn't coming from Best Buy. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> so, when did you come to LA? In 1993, actually. um, I was trying to come in the springtime and um the riots were happening so i was like oh maybe i'll wait a little bit till after the summer." yeah you
0: might want to let that
1: blow over till after that fucking shit burns off a little bit you know and all the smoke clears literally and then i came in uh, november i think like around mid-november or something like that, or end of november 17 something like that i came here and i just uh, was kicking it around uh, venice for a minute With uh, Dale and the guys from Beowulf back then and then um, I went to a youth hostel in Santa Monica for a couple days and I was like yeah I'm probably going to head out back home kept buying clothes and shoes and shit to take back home basically spending all my money and then um, Did you come out here just to play music? No I came out here to visit I wanted to see Venice Beach Did you know anybody? I, uh, I only knew Dale from Beowulf but basically via like phone calls and and writing letters that's mm-hmm. how it was back in the day so um came out and hung out with them and watched like them rehearse and stuff like that and then went to that youth hostel for a little bit a couple of days and i met someone there and um that person uh, had a room in hollywood was trying to rent it for me for like uh, the rest of the month because she had to go back to europe She was in sweden or something i was like yeah i'll take your room It was like 300 bucks and it was like pretty much the last money i had so I got the room and I was like, "Fuck, I'll just I can stay in Hollywood for a little longer and explore that a little bit." And then I was walking to the supermarket to buy some uh, some food, and uh, I saw Bobby Hamill standing outside the supermarket from Biohazard? Biohazard. and he had a beard and it, it, his posture and his clothing it looked like him, but I couldn't really tell if it was him or not I started walking closer and closer and he's like looking at me like. And he starts going like, yo, what the fuck are you looking at, son? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was like, "Uh, Bobby? He's like, what the fuck? So you already knew him? Yeah, and he's like, I knew him from tour, they were on tour in Belgium, like in in our first tours, we would follow them around Europe a couple times, and and, uh, this is like when they were, their very first tour with Mucky Pup in Europe. And um, he's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, you guys are from New York. And everybody walks out of the grocery store at that point. Evan, Billy. And everybody's just kind of like, what the heck? Were they on tour? They were recording? They, were, they just got a deal with uh, Warner Brothers and they were recording at a and Studios where they film all the Muppet stuff. And um, so they were like, well, you should come hang out with us at the, at the studio. We're here recording, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. I go, oh, where, where are you guys staying? They're like, oh, right here in this apartment building. I'm like, that's where I'm staying. They were staying on the fourth floor, I was staying on the second floor. And um, you know, so every day I started hanging out with them, going to the studio, this and that. And one day I was in their apartment, and I never forget, Evan is like in the mirror doing his hair, <laughs> he had long hair at the time. He's all brushing his hair and stuff. And he goes, Christian, come here. And I'm like, what? He goes, and he looks at me in the mirror at me, and I'm kind of behind the door, and he's like, Fear Factory. I'm like, yeah, I heard of them. What, they're playing tonight or something? They go, no, you're going to play bass for them. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, man. I go, but I'm a guitar player, really. But he had seen me play bass one time on the streets in Europe. Mm-hmm. I grabbed like some South American bands, upright bass, and I started jamming on it. And everybody was like, holy shit. What are you? Oh, my God. It's bad. And bad. They always remember that. And um, he was like, you're in the band. It's done deal already. I'm like, what? You, never, you had never met the guys? I never met the guys, but... You never heard them? What's funny is, I did a tour in Europe opening up for The Accused with my band called Asphyxia back in the day. I was playing guitar on that tour. And we were sharing a bus and the tour manager of that tour, we always get CDs in the mail to his production company company for bands that to go on tour on for, for Europe because he was a promoter. And uh, he's, he throws me, he's, throws me a ham sandwich that he made... And this Fear Factory C D, the first one. And he goes, Here. Sold the- sold a new machine. Yeah, he goes, Here, check these guys out. They're they're badass. I'm gonna bring them to Europe for the first time. I'm like, Oh, cool. What is it? Oh, it's death metal. I'm like, Oh, okay. There's only a couple of death metal things I really kinda like dug and it was maybe like uh like death or something like that. Napalm was one of my favorite bands in that genre, like Ryan Corbett. So it's kinda like, Oh, okay, I'll check it out. So we got off home after the tour and I finally decided to pop it in. And my bass player was there at the time at my house, and we popped the C D and and our jaws kind of dropped. We were like, what the fuck? Like that low B tuning. And it was so heavy and different. Especially songs like Scapegoat. It was just like, what the fuck? That was the first song I heard. WSOU. And so I always remembered that. But I CD kind of went on my pile of CDs that I never really listened to too much. Because I was really listening to like more like uh, hardcore. I was sick of it all, stuff like that. So I heard of the band. So Evan tells me, I'm gonna contact the guys, and that's it. So he contacted Bird and Dino, and the next day they wanted to meet me at a bar in uh, in Hollywood off Melrose Avenue, called Smalls. I don't know if it's still there. It was like a dive place, and um, so we go down there. Me and Bobby Hamble and uh, their drum tech at the time, Bones. So we go down there, and Bird is there, and they introduce me. And first thing that Bird asked me, "Can you do you know how to triple pick?" I'm like. From here to Belgium. What do you mean it's going? How much Morse code do you want to write? You know? <laughs> and he's like, All right, meet me tomorrow. So I met them at the house. This was Taft Avenue uh, off of Hollywood Boulevard by uh, like 7 Eleven and Pier Import on the, on the back of Hollywood Boulevard was a street called Taft, a big building. And they lived in the bottom of that building, him and Dino. So I went to that house and I met Dino the first time then. And he goes, All right, tonight we got rehearsal, or like auditions um there's a couple other guys coming so bring a base whatever you got and uh that's it so i go back to the apartment and i tell evan like hey i gotta go down there tonight and audition he goes what do you need i go i'll well, need a base I'm like Fuck, i don't have a base he goes don't worry i got you so he gave me that biohazard base the one with that logo on that punisher mm-hmm. base and I was seeing that shit on tour forever, like, you know, the first two Biohazard albums, especially like when they came back to Europe on Urban Discipline, they were fucking huge. And they were kind of like doing something that nobody ever really really done, you know, at that time. You know, very, very groundbreaking. Uh, two singers and stuff like that. Nobody's ever really done the two singers thing still to this day like that. Not with two instruments playing. That's not
0: true. Mastodon.
1: Yeah, but they're not really a hardcore band, you know. In that scene, nobody really... Oh, there's
0: another band, uh, Code Orange, kind of does that. Yeah? Yeah, they have, they have uh, the drummer sings, and then I
1: think one other person in the band sings. So
0: it, it's, it's around. It's around.
1: I... <laughs> they did a very groundbreaking, though, in, yeah. the, in that, what they did. Yeah, so um, I remember that bass very well, and he gave me that bass, and I had it on the back of the case as well. So he goes, all right, go audition. Here's some strings, this and that. I'm like, oh, man, that's the best. So I'm on the... <laughs> take the bus... I have to go audition in fucking South Central. <laughs> it's like Vermont and like it's right a Back couple of. Back when
0: South Central was South Central.
1: I mean, this was right after the riots. That the, the year was not even really over. That was six months before the, after the riots. So you could still feel, you could still smell the, 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 the ashes basically yeah. over there. And we're rehearsing a couple blocks from um, Florence and Normandy. It's like a couple blocks away. So I'm on the bus. I have to take a transition somewhere. I don't know where I'm going. I get lost. Before the internet. <laughs> All the white people disappear from the bus. It's only black people at one point. I'm the only white guy with long hair, tattoos. I'm like, I keep smiling. <laughs> you know what I mean? People looking at me like sitting on a cat on a bench like across from me, just looking at me, and I'm looking at my case. It says biohazard on a, in orange <laughs> fucking spray paint. See what right? you doing here, peck of wood? <laughs> Yeah, and then everybody leaves on the bus, and I'm on my bus by myself. And the bus stops, like it's the end of the line. Yeah. And the bus driver looks in the rear view mirror, this older black dude, and he's like, he shakes his head, he goes, you're lost? (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I'll go to the front and start talking to him. Like he hears my broken English, and he's like, oh, man, you're so lost. And he puts me kind of in the right direction. So I get to where I needed to go, get off that bus stop, Walk like two blocks because I think I got one bus stop to earlier so something. Still had to walk two blocks to the to the corner, and I could just tell, man, this is not the best neighborhood. I'm just like, where the fuck am I? So I get to the gate. Dino comes out, opens the gate. They lock it behind me. Like, just wait out here. We got one more guy that we're, at, we're checking out, and then it's your turn. This is gonna this is gonna this is not gonna take very long. So I'm like, all right. And so I hear it going. I hear Fear Factory playing that little room, and then he comes out. The guy. The guy had this really like very like curly but very like like how a like a perm is like shiny with all the oils <laughs> and stuff in it. you know what I mean it's like he looks very pretty he came out like I'm like what speaking like, of glam metal totally glam glammed out that dude and he was like ah that is gonna take long alright let's go and at that time I just had heard a car. Oh, a car came through the the neighborhood and even stopped at the corner. This is a major intersection. And from a small street, that car just like went straight across. And then a cop, two minutes later, a cop car is chasing I'm like, oh man, this is bad out here. So we get in the room and uh, they're like, oh, we're not going to play some old songs. We've been jamming on this riff and they were writing D Yeah. Dino started playing, and they had it like a little bit worked out. It was like, it was almost. A full song, but some of the parts were not finished yet and stuff like that. So we started jamming on that. I played in the bass, and I just started playing guitar on bass. And that was it. And they just kind of looked at me like, fuck. I mean, they felt the vibe, and, and it was locking in. And Because basically, I knew how to triple triple pick, all that stuff on guitar. So I was just playing guitar on bass. But that
0: stuff was still pretty new, like that style of kind and it was of very st- staccato. Low tune.
1: Yeah, very staccato, very low tune. It was basically, to me, what whatever remind- my... When I stepped in there, I didn't feel like it was a death metal band. Yeah. And that's what I was like, wow, this is something different. Well, I, I never to me
0: like obviously soul of the new machine was something that had a foot in death metal, but there mm-hmm. was something cleaner about it and and uh, ob- and you heard the the industrial influences, yeah. the the new wave influence the kind of gothic stuff going on and there was to me it was like kind of a through line between Roadrunner Negative, life of agony and fear factory where there was this a different vocal style like i felt like that kind of i mean maybe from the outside looking in, it's kind of it's my
1: it's honestly i can say it's really my my favorite record of the band still and even though i wasn't i wasn't on that record and that's my favorite record yeah because that record was very raw and very true like honestly the whole man versus machine concepts and you know i mean that's great with you know you're a singer and you have to get you have to write about something that's you know creative and stuff. i understand why he went that route but to me that was not really my favorite thing yeah to me like him singing songs like leech master that was about a, that was a love song about an ex-girlfriend or um crash test which was about animal testing and when you read the lyrics you're just like whoa if if you would have done a video back in the day with the lyrics like when you see the lyrics on a video and you can actually read the lyrics it would made a lot of impact because those lyrics were like intense and he never really wrote like that again afterwards and i kind of always miss that and the, the, that first rawness of fear factory honestly i never really felt that when i still felt that when i first came in the band and then when we still toured on the on the sepultura tour with clutch and, uh, and fudge tunnel i still felt that but then during the de- de- demanufactured days it started this disappearing and it was, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, not live, but on on record, it was different. It was, you know, all of a sudden it was a concept record. The manufacturer was a different sound. It was, a, I felt like it was a whole new band at that point. So with, so kind of a couple
0: things I want, I want to go over. So what was the L.A. scene like back then? Because I feel like, you know, me not being there, but you know, you kind of seeing what was coming out of there, bands, like System of a Down bands, like. Cold Chamber, and it well, seemed, seemed like the, seemed like there was a more of a melting pot of different styles, and and all kinds of different things were happening, um, you know, Tool and Rage Against the Machine and all this stuff. I don't know if that's a little bit before
1: yeah, you well, guys. I still felt that little before when I first came here. I still felt that little before, yeah. and I already felt like, oh, I'm missing the last of this little before because you know, all the when when Faith No More blew up in 1992, I mean 90 91, like it became massive. Uh, that. 90s to 92 that period that's a period that i missed here and that I really feel like I wish I was I was here for that period yeah but I came here in 93 and um, this is when honestly you can still say like everybody was bringing out records that were very that every record that came out from any band that you would read about in Kerrang! or Metal Hammer! or any of those magazines they all made records that were uh, of big impact yeah but the thing that
0: that and to me what I loved is just
1: everything seemed different
0: like, yep. no one, you know, obviously there were some copycats or stuff that was, you know, maybe removed kind of once but there over. Wasn't,
1: yeah, there wasn't full drawers of that's, of those type of bands in every category. Well, you know I, I, I mean? just like, feel like one thing that the, the new
0: metal era, you know, you know, I don't even know if you guys are even, if you're even comfortable putting Fear Factory in that, but with, with that wave of bands it just seemed like anything was okay. Like, you, the, the rules seemed to be breaking down a little more. People were a little more open-minded for a period.
1: yeah. Uh, well, th- there was bands that started to come out that, like for instance, when Corn when we we dropped the manufacturer, and at that time Corn just came out with uh, their first record, and the entire scene changed. Yeah, like, just like honestly, when Pantera came out, things changed as well. Everybody went back to the drawing board to. Okay, do I get my chugging right? <laughs> now, do you, do you say this as someone... It even changed well, Fear Factory. No,
0: but what I'm saying, is this someone as someone who, when you were in still overseas, or this, th- this stuff that happened while you were in the US and playing with Fear Factory?
1: When Vul- Vulgar Display of power dropped, I was still in Belgium, yeah. feeling what, the impact, what it did over there. But when I came here, that was still 1993. So that record, um, they were still touring on that record on Vulgar. I think, or they might have started ending that touring cycle and and beginning writing, or it might have been, honestly, that might have been, uh, yeah, that might have been the end of that, because I still saw them playing with um, um, Sepultura on a tour, and uh, that was the ending cycle, and I just got to, to the States, and honestly, you can, even Fear Factory changed, when Vulgar came out, it changed Dino as a guitar player as well, it changed everyone. I don't think you would hear songs like self Bias Resistor and stuff like that if it wasn't for, for that Volga record. And then a, a couple of years later, we're like 94, 95, and Korn comes out with Blind. It, changed, it turned the entire scene upside down again. Everybody started to sound like Korn. Everybody started down tuning, playing seven strings, using thick strings, muddy sounds. Everybody wants to use Ross Robinson. <laughs> yeah. It's great. It's and I mean, and I saw a lot of bands Getting it was kind of like a wind whirl, right? and and some bands were getting kind of like sucked up in that for a while. Even Machine Head, and then you get Cold Chamber that comes out, and all these bands kind of like Sepultura with roots. Sepultura, like everybody kind of got in that wind world for a little while, and then kind of like fell out. Like, okay, what was that? It's crazy how well, much impact Korn had.
0: Listen, I, I I remember it. I remember bands like uh, like you have like a hardcore band or metalcore band, even Seven Dust. Yeah, but to me, Seven Dust was actually kind Incubus. of Incubus. Yeah, but seven dust was doing their own thing yeah and they, but they, they were they, tuning down yeah Why? but they came out i, I guess what i'd say with them is they came out fully formed they weren't like this one thing and then you know they're a post corn world band you know like, like yeah. corn and dirty they existed. survived
1: out of that world i mean a lot of bands didn't survive and some did survive out of it and kind of like well that. it's
0: it's like any any subgenre the and best- some bands
1: like okay we we did. to grow our hair back and long again, because we need to get back into the metal shit. What have we been doing? Coloring our hair for like the last five years and shit. You know, there's bands like that. Well, I think,
0: I think it goes both ways. I think, you know, people will go with, you know, the flow of whatever's happening. I, I remember when, um, you know, a band like Chimera, mm-hmm. they kind of came out on the heels of the fear factories and, and machine heads. And were more kind of in that new metal, uh, imagery and, yeah. and the sounds, and then as they kind of more started associating with the Shadows Falls and Lamb of Gods and those bands, then they kind of their hair got longer, the yeah. songs got more metal, um, you know, and then Machine Head kind of went back more towards a more metallic sound and and you know kind of went away from that stuff. So there's, you know, I think you know even Slayer, you know, put out that 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 record, um, Di- Diabolus in, in Musica, who which kind of you know depending on who you are you know some people like it some people didn't like it but it definitely had a little more of that new metal kind of
1: sound because what happened to the scene kind of affected a lot of bands and even them
0: <laughs> believe yeah it or not. but that's but i think no one's um immune to that you know i mean yeah. you had kiss put out a disco song and you know judas priest with turbo lover and you know like you know everyone's kind of a victim of their their time yeah. you know I don't. i don't think there's any way you can kind of Get 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 around that. Kind of kind of going back to what you were saying about um, you know the the Pantera thing. One thing that really kind of sticks to out to me because I actually wrote, wrote an article, wrote a couple articles that actually Fear Factor was really prominent. Um, one was about the production, uh, the, like just the way Pantera records sounded, mm-hmm. kind of seemed to influence the next really modern metal today. To me is uh, started with not started me, but but was. The Seed was set, you know, kind of with um, with Vulgar, but then the two records, to me, that kind of took it to the next step was D-Manufacture and then Machine Head Burn My Eyes, and those obviously were with Colin Richardson. Yeah. What was um, working with Colin, like, was, was that something intentional that you guys were, like, kind of pivoting
1: off of what you had heard Pantera do? Well, he did the first Fear Factory record, so it was kind of like a natural progression to use him again. And what's funny is we visited like three or four studios with him that we were thinking of using for uh, for doing the manufacture record and all the records that we kept pulling out to play in the studio to hear the room was vulgar the machine had first burn up my eyes record so oh burn my eyes was first then it was yeah it, it came it, it was just i think he just mixed it or something it just came out or something yeah. like that um and he was playing a therapy record mm-hmm uh, that English Band Therapy. Yeah, I really... I'm and they had one forever. song... They had one record and an amazing production. I mean, the snare sound was just like unbelievable the drum it, sound. Was it his record? Was it Colin record or some somebody I'm else produced sure. it? I'm not sure. I forget. But th- it was those three records that we kept playing in every studio. And that Volker record was always the one that... You know, it's, it, it was... Th- what happened, I mean... If you listen to that record now, it sounds kind of like thinner and you're like... A I mean, it still sounds good. Yeah,
0: but I think if you put on... And I, I noticed this, like, I think, I forget where I was, but somewhere with kind of like a nice sound system. And then you hear, if you listen to Vulgar and then you listen to Demanufacture, they both have that quality of kind of like, comparatively to, to modern yeah. records, the low end really isn't there. But that's because all the the clicky kick drums mm-hmm. and that tight kind of compressed thing there was, you kind of had to... Back then, if there was too much low end, a lot of that stuff would get lost. So it's just kind of our the way we kind of perceive records sonically has changed over over the years. I'm sure a remastered version, you could make that where it doesn't sound so yeah. small. But, you know, that's what I, I didn't put, put it this way. I didn't realize that Demanufacture was that influenced by Vulgar till years later. <laughs> yeah, it was actually.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of records were.
0: Yeah, like no, I think, but game. I but I but I think the impact of because, you know, cuz one thing if you, you know, Machine Head and Fear Factory put out those records and no one cared, but they were also classic records. So then that spawned a bunch of people who wanted to copy that and then to me that defined the sound of metal really till now. You know, if you think about it, like it kind of switched somewhere over 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 in that time. But um um uh, actually in, in another article I wrote about uh that fear factory was really prominent about was kind of the evolution of singing and screaming in, in 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 heavy heavy music and and to me fear factory was kind of right on the precipice of like who before fear factory who was really doing songs where it was like scream I don't sing. think
1: anyone not in that genre definitely not in the heavy music at all nobody was what, did you guys
0: realize that you were the, like that that was unique you know me? what
1: it was it it basically was, when you looked at Bert back in those days, in the early days, he, to me, he was, um, um, if it wasn't for Napalm Death and Barney, Bert wouldn't have had that, you know, that, the same kind of image. The blonde hair, just like that. You know, the, the hardcore pose where you know, the, 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 the arm is sideways with the mic right in your face and that low fucking lung power. And that was Barney from Napalm. Yeah. That's what he looked like.
0: He even he, to me, he sounded like Barney on the well, early records too. I,
1: I really always felt like it, because Dino probably like Napalm was one of their favorite bands, and I think um, when Bird came in, he was not really a death metal singer. It was not like oh I like I love death metal. I'm going to do death metal band. I think it was because it was that type of music. Dino and Bird had. I mean, started Dino and Raymond had started this band. They needed a singer. Bird came in. Oh, they showed him Napalm. Oh, Bird can do. I can do that. Bert looks California, very, you know what I mean? Kind of like, well, he's actually from Houston, but he had that California look with the shorts and that, you know, the boots because it was still coming out of that grunge era a little bit. Yeah. So the flannels were still in and stuff like that, and and so you can actually, I always looked at, I always saw Barney from Nepal in that early Bird, which was cool, and Bird did a fucking great job at it. And then the other thing that Bird and Dina really liked was Garflesh. Yeah. So the singing part came from just Bert listening to Garflesh. And one day in rehearsal, he after like he was doing a verse, he started singing on this part, and everybody was just like, "Whoa, what the fuck?" Fear Factory, the early Fear Factory, if it wasn't for Napalm or Godflesh, uh, Fear Factory would never sounded on those first uh, recordings like they did. Those were the two prominent bands that really um, created or formed that that style of music. Do you feel like Fear Factory was new metal? No, absolutely not.
0: But you do no. you feel like you influenced new metal though, or like what? maybe
1: influenced uh, some of the bands in that scene, maybe, or maybe like you know that, that turned on into the whole metalcore type of thing. And the thing I always said is that the vocals were very different and the drums, the guitars. I mean, Dino wrote great riffs; he's a great writer. But the only thing that um, you know, it wasn't to me. It's not the guitars or the bass that sold that band. It was the vocals and the drums. Monty signed that band because he heard that singing and that scream. That grunt. I mean, there was, he was signing tons of death metal bands. It was it was not hard finding a good death metal band. It was not like that. He just heard the singing and the, and that low grunt. And everybody thought, oh, who's that second singer you guys have? Is that maybe Raymond singing or something? No, he's it like, it's me. And they're like, huh? How are you doing those two things? They couldn't, People couldn't really wrap their head around in the beginning. That one person could do right. both things. and. The, f- the fact of the matter is, there was a lot of guitar players that can go, you know what I mean, and do the triplets and all that. That was not the fact that Raymond could actually play those riffs exactly on his kick drums. That was still a new thing. Well, when you go, and the kick drums do exactly the same thing, that simple little like five-picking riff you're playing, all of a sudden has all this kick in your back. You're just like, oh my god, it sounds really good. So really simple riffs. Started to sound really good, like ju-jung, ju-jung, and what, Raymond playing the kicks underneath. Was um Mashuga on your guys' radar back then? No, I'd never even heard of Meshuga. Be,
0: well, because I feel like, um, to me, like I pretty much got into both bands around the same time around like '96, you know. So, but I know Mashuga came out like around '91, you know, roughly around the same time. So, to me, it's a it's a uh. A thing of kind of parallel thinking even though the you know the sugar was kind of doing this more kind of fusion progressive thing and i perceived fear factor doing a more straightforward kind of mainstream version of it but there were similarities in that those are the two bands that kind of had that staccato thing where the you know where the the rhythm and the the uh, the picking and the kick drum thing kind of kind of lined up. But when you guys discovered them,
1: did you think they were like ripping you guys off or anything? No, because when I first heard Meshuggah, to me they sounded like a Metallica clone, honestly. Those earlier records, they were very like, they were very caught up in that European scene because they came from Europe. And for them breaking out of Europe was, for any band, I was in bands in Europe, for any band in any European market, it was very hard breaking out of that. Only a couple bands have done it creators the bands like that German bands Oh no.
0: there's you know this back this, in this, the early 90s this place Sweden there's like 50
1: bands N- now yeah but not back then back, back then back th- I'm talking about 1990 right that's from Fear Factor started. had like, Cathedral you okay. had Paradise
0: Lost okay um you know barely starting you know that was the first record you had the black metal
1: scene kind of coming up emperor but there was pestilence i mean yeah. had, yes there was european bands but not like it got flooded now now there's so many bands but yeah. not back then and it was really tough it was not like every country had like 10 huge bands it was only a couple bands out of each country that were kind of had variety and were doing records and were lucky enough to be picked up by european labels that had a little bit of weight in the american market But it was not like these American big huge labels or big huge um, uh, majors were picking up all these bands. And actually in in 19, when I came into Fear Factory, that's when major labels were picking up death metal bands. That's when Morbid Angel got signed to Giant. And that was like 93 or something like that. So I remember even, uh, or like no, a little before that, I remember uh, Fear Factory telling me that their lawyer had told them like, don't sign this Roadrunner deal. I'm going to get you guys in a major in six months. But the guy's going to wait, and they signed the deal anyway. And then, sure enough, all these major labels came after Fear Factory. We became good friends with a guy at this uh, after
0: the manufacturer.
1: Or? This is when the manufacturer just came out. There was a bunch of labels trying to get us from Rotor, and one label in particular was Interscope. Yeah. We wanted to be on Interscope so bad that we were, having, we, invi- we were inviting this guy to our shows all the time. Wasn't corn on Interscope? No, they, yeah, they were immortal immortal. which I'm not, was an inter, uh, an imprint under um one of those majors. Um I forget. Uh, immortal was an imprint uh, epic maybe or something like that. I have no honestly all that that stuff like where cuz I know there's been like 50,000
0: major label mergers in the yeah. last 20 years so it's for me it's hard to remember. But the early
1: 90s were a really cool like period because interscope you had like bands like like Nine Inch Nails and Helmet and Marilyn Manson first coming out on that I don't remember when they first uh, came out on that label that that period was was amazing that yeah. Tool was on it I think or something like that like all these cool bands and we wanted to be in that mix of those type of bands because yeah. we felt like we could break out of uh, out of the 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 very we had still a little bit of a death metal stigma b- behind us and that really heavy extreme music i mean how are you guys going to break out of that
0: well in know? in a, in a way though i think it worked to your advantage because the br- that was the time period where the roadrunner brand became so yeah. strong mm-hmm. you know you had r- literally almost every band that came out on roadrunner at that time was an impact band um in a cultural sense and so once that kind of you know and and the thing is there's no brand association with a major label you know no one buys a record because it says Warner Brothers on it no. you know but people buy a record because it says Rotor or maybe you know now I think that's that's changed a lot over the, over, the, over the years but at that time that's when that that was building so in a sense you became a movement band where it's like oh here's this group of new bands and, and so you know sometimes things end up working out for you you
1: know there's a lot of cool labels with a lot of you know I mean all that went away. There's so much money being thrown around all these bands, and when, especially when Corn came out, how many bands that they were trying to sign? That you know, even Sugar Ray bands like that, their first album had a little bit of that. Everybody was riding that whole wave. Yeah. But what they what they started, and everybody like, it, it became really hot. Being a really, everybody was looking for that next Corn. Who's gonna be that next Corn? Um, and then you know, uh, Deftone don't sign the Maverick. Yeah, had Deftones, you had, Def um, had Cold Chamber, you had. Uh, who came after that? Obviously, Inky, those people well, don't those remember. Those are Incubus the bands is, that we know of. Yeah. What about all the bands that never stuck to that wall and kind of fell off that well, we lit remember those bands like lit and there was so many different no, bands but, No, well to,
0: that's I think that's that's different I think you're just talking but about but it was if all that about shit, LA yeah but um, no
1: lit is still was that one song it was gay it was Yeah, gay. But, was gay as shit well, well, but in the beginning they were all heavier and then they noticed oh we're not gonna make it being in so they started writing like super like wimpy well, Commercial I mean, I think,
0: I think there was a cross-section between kind of the post-grunge era and just straight-up alternative rock that blended, you know, to a degree with that, um, you know, what became new metal, because, you know, a lot of that stuff was coming from Southern California and some of the imagery, but, you know, I don't think, you know, I think you have these, you know, this stuff that became almost the fabric of, of radio rock or almost like, you know, bands like Sugar Ray, they're on pop radio yeah you know it's not even
1: you incubus know, was not a pop like now they're a pop band really you know what i mean they're like a rock pop rock band no I mean, they came out they're... they
0: were like a funk metal in the beginning
1: they were basically riding the coattail of what corn was doing uh, i would i would put them i was... would put them much more in in like a faith no more they were going on tour no, no, with corn they were going on tour with deftones no i know, know, know. they,
0: they were on those tours they toured with
1: soulfly and then you know, they just tou- changed like that yeah <laughs> well no actually they didn't they did no, I, I,
0: I, no they're you know they they put out you know uh I forget the first record uh I don't I don't have but Science which was real funky and had a lot of like you know the DJ stuff and and, and his vocals were a bit more FD, kind of ra- rapid fire one. Yeah, still doing um, it and then they put out Make Yourself which was kind of the one where they went they kind of simplified things made things more melodic but it was still a, a heavy enough record you know that that record they tore the system of down they tore Deftones they were still doing uh kind of in that world and then the record after that, Morning View, that's when they kinda really went straight, almost like easy listening rock, where it's like real smooth and, and kinda changed. But you know, th- there there was a foothold in the in the heavier world for sure. Um uh kind of going going back to what we were we were talking about a little before. So during this time, so Fear Factory obviously becomes a massive success, and then at some point things break down. Uh, personality wise within with, within the band what what happened there
1: where uh Dino ended up uh, getting kicked out of the band I mean it was maybe more bird clashing with uh with Dino at that point I think and I mean we were all clashing a little bit we, we had we had been on tour for so long and we all needed breaks and stuff like that you're living with each other like you know 24 7 and and I think at one point bird was bird basically quit Yeah, in Japan, he took me and Raymond one time aside, and he was basically telling us like, "I'm quitting. Um, I'm I'm just done with this. I can't. This is too frustrating for me." And and we're like, "We understand." And that was it. And um, And this was on after Digimortal came out. Yeah, this was uh, during like the last touring cycles of Digimortal. So, um, I mean, I don't even know how much I can really reveal or or talk about this because of the legal situation that, that I'm currently still in with the band. Um, but that was basically it and um, the band was over and I was already started doing something on the side with uh, Be Real and Stefan from Deftones Kush and Raymond yeah Kush and uh, we had a deal lined up like that like a half million dollar deal with Sony and uh, when Roadrunner found out about that deal they sent me and Raymond cease and desist letters saying like you're individually signed to Roadrunner Records you can't do anything without our consent, or we're like, what? How do they
0: even know about the deal?
1: Because it's the industry, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think we had a—that's a good question. But I think you know, I think that they knew they were—they knew we were doing the band and stuff—and they found out, and we got the we got the letters in the mail, and that was it. Um, we couldn't sign the deal because uh, we were still signed to to Runner and they were making a big stink from it out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's when we realized, like, that's when I, me and Raymond realized that we cannot continue our music career or writing career because this company is holding, basically, like, you know, holding this prison sentence above our head that we're signed to them. And, and anything we put out is they have first pick at and, and they own the rights. And so it's like, what the fuck? So um, we had to find a way to get off the label. And that was the only thing in my mind. I was like, how the fuck can I get off this label that's holding me hostage? And I knew that they would owe us a, a, big, a big sum of money for the next option of the, the next record after DigiMortal. So I think I brought it up one day to Raymond, and I was like, you know what? We should just give Roderick a fucking demo. Tell him we're writing the record. I'll play guitar on it, whatever. We'll just do it real quick, write some shitty-ass songs. But we might have to have Bert sing on them because otherwise it can't really consider it to be like a demo. And then we'll just tell Ronan to write the next record. So we kind of talked about it because I knew that Bert would not want to work with Dino. I already knew that because he basically left the band for that. And the band was kind of just dissolved, basically. I mean, Dino didn't come to me or Raymond like, oh, let's find another singer or something like that. There was none of that. It was just kind of like...
0: So were you guys... so? Mm-hmm. Burton had an issue with Dino, but you guys d- didn't have an issue with Dino at that point.
1: I mean, we all had a little bit of issues here and there, but it wasn't the main problem. To me, like it, it, it would never overpower. I'd be like, just shut the fuck up, whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, kind of get over it. Let's yeah, get like, carry on with business. But to to our singer, it it was eating him away. Yeah, on the inside, and he couldn't handle it anymore. Like he so, was, all right. He so, so you guys he was do miserable.
0: so you guys do this demo to try and not to so get them to turn yes, it down. Yes.
1: And then they taped. I wrote Corporate Cloning, uh, Cyber, uh, maybe Slave Labor, Corporate Cloning, and maybe Archetype? Three songs, I think. And um, we gave it to Roadrunner, and Monty fucking loved it. Bird said it took a lot of convincing to get Bird to sing on it. Bird was like, why this and that? I don't want to do this. And I'm like, you know what? Do you want to be signed to this label for the rest of your life?
0: You there was get- only the one record
1: left on the deal? No. No, there was two options left, or something like that. But. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is a no. rock and roll city Stop for sure. Me. I have to be
0: The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America profiles the wrath of the buzzard P.R.O.H. Files subscribe now wherever you get podcasts
1: Hey what's up my name's Lurk and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip podcast. Every week I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up and coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip podcast One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.
0: Yeah, but then if they liked it, then Arch, now you're, now you're stuck? Or, you, or the idea was to just make two records get off the,
1: the, the... No. The idea was to get dropped. And Monty liked it. So they're trying to offer us half of the money since Dino is not... Because Burr was basically like, I don't want to have... I, he didn't want to be around Dino or have him play in the band. So I'm like, all right. So what are we going to do then? So We're we going to play guitar. It's not like you just pick up any guitar player to fill in like you know like Arch Enemy or something. You just go grab another guitar player, some other virtuoso yeah. that previously played maybe Megadeth or something. You know what I mean? Chris Broderick all of a sudden shows up in... Yeah, Dino in a, has a very
0: definitive rhythm style. So it was style. not really like
1: that. So... We couldn't even really think of. I thought of people. And I couldn't even think of anyone. I'm like, you know, but maybe someone like Shane from Napalm Death probably could do it better job than most really good guitar players. Yeah, because he knows that style and that writing style. And well,
0: the way you'd probably have to almost find someone who was like a Fear Factory disciple, like someone who really learned that stuff. Yeah, you know,
1: there's nobody really around, and until the guys told me you should play guitar, that didn't come from me. that yeah. came from from the other two. So. That's Um, because they had heard
0: you play the stuff before? Well, because
1: I was writing some of the stuff on the demo. Yeah. And I played on the demo. So uh, Rotor only wanted to give us half of the money for that record. And I'm like, all right, good. Because if they're not going to give us the full amount that is in the contract, then they got to let us go. And that still would cost us 80 grand to get off of that label, to get lawyers to make sure that Rotor was going to release us out of that contract because they were not going to fulfill that option. And we didn't agree to new terms because we didn't want to agree because that's our way out. So Rona was like, "All right, I guess we're not going to come to terms." So then it's up to us. It's not like, "Okay, here, here, you're released." It doesn't work like that. Yeah, it's like fucking trying to get somebody out of prison. And you have to, it's really it's really like that. It's
0: like, that. A, it's like a, a crazy divorce. It's
1: like yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it takes another eight months and eighty thousand dollars to actually get signed signature paperwork that we are off that label and at that point the deal with sony was not there anymore yeah for and then you know uh, uh deftone started touring again Cypress started working i started doing a lot of stuff with Cypress. um so um so and we ended up doing we ended up writing some more songs during this whole process so at the end of the day we had a, pretty much an entire fear factory record written that type of thing and the guys were like, You should just play guitar, we'll find a bass player and let's put this on this little label because everybody was kinda of like getting broke and we all needed something you know, to live off. So we put out that record on on a small independent and kept touring it. And then that was Archetype Bills. Well, isn't that I think that's I always talk
0: about this idea of kind of the the middle class metal band curse, where it's that if you get to a certain level of success, in a way you become enslaved to that success because you're not making enough money to retire, yeah. but you've spent all of these years doing this and you haven't incurred other skills where you could do another job and make the same amount of money. So if you're, you know, a cannibal corpse, if you're, um, you know, a, a mid-level band, a devil driver, mm-hmm. a band like this where those bands do very well, this is definitely not too... Um, you know, uh, disregard their success. Cause they're very successful, but it is a blue collar endeavor. Like you have to go out and you got to work, you got to play, you got to make records. Yeah. It, it is, you know, it's a lot more regimented than just like, Oh, we're artists and we want to create, you know, it's, it's uh, Even more so
1: now. Yeah. And records don't sell. So now it's all about touring and selling merch.
0: Yeah. No, it no, definitely, man. It's, uh, so, so, all right. So, you playing guitar i mean do you feel like more like a guitar player than a than a bass player or is it kind of
1: you kind of just wear two hats hmm it's weird i mean if the band would reunite tomorrow i would definitely feel as a bass player and i wouldn't even want nothing to do with guitar besides maybe showing dino like a riff here and there, like hey i wrote this riff you like this or that you know what i mean because it's all riding with the drummer. With Fear Factor, it's, it's, it's all about riding with Raymond and get the structure down. What is Raymond up to? I've, I feel he, like I've uh, seen him in a minute. He's doing a bunch of supplement... Um, I think he's... he's, he's um, he runs around selling uh, legal drugs, supplements. Supplements. <laughs> and um, I think he's doing that with his wife. So and he, but he hasn't been he, playing... He has a couple of business aven- uh, adventures that he's going, but... Um, he had a studio. I'm not sure if he still has a studio, but he moved the studio up north to Oxnard. So I, I don't think he has been playing a lot, that's for sure. I don't I'll even... tell you, Raymond,
0: to me, is one of the most underrated drummers ever. He sure was. And uh, we, me and Dallas got the opportunity to write a song with him. I it, I still have, have the song, and uh, Tim Williams from VOD actually did a demo vocal mm-hmm. over it. It's really, really cool, but we literally like wrote a song and recorded it in in a day and and it was I just couldn't believe real style writing yeah, but it's it's actually a really cool cool track we we called like uh the we called it God Factory <laughs> <laughs> and but it almost sounds like that it's like it's got enough of the. Kind of staccato riffing, and then some kind of more, God forbid, you know, thr- kind of melodic thrash stuff in there. It was a, it was a really cool track, uh, you know. Hopefully, me, I'm one of those guys where I feel like a song is never dead. Like I'll I'll use riffs from ten years ago. Like, yeah. you know if, it, if it, a good riff is is classic.
1: Yeah, it should, you know, it be timeless, right? you know,
0: good song is is always applicable as far as I'm concerned. But uh, no, I was just amazed how a how hard he hits, which is unbelievable, and the consistency, like. He was doing like I think double bit, you know. He's doing sixteenth note double bass at like you know two hundred BPM, and it was you know I have the track. There's no triggers, there's no nothing. It's just like yeah, I know. it's you know it's like a full on like album t- t- take, and
1: we literally wrote it that day. And you're like, I never forget stepping in that rehearsal room the very first time for my audition with Fear Factory, and I saw Raymond play, and I stood like I mean it was a small room, it was super small, and I basically stood like my nose was like. Half a foot away from the from the symbol, and I just stood there looking at him. And he, the way he was playing, I was like, "Oh my god!" Like it was, I was like, "I want to be in." I want to be in. <laughs> after, right after that rehearsal, I was like, kind of. Ha- I had that feeling like, "What are they gonna say? I'm in the band?" What are they gonna say? Because I wanted to be in. After I saw it, and the, I came there kind of like, "Let's see what this is." Uh, Fear Factory, death metal band, kind of. You know, I wasn't. I wanted to be in a hardcore band. If that was like sick of it all, asking me for a bass gig or something like that, I would have been like, flying. You know what I mean? I was just like my feet off the ground. Yeah, but Fear Factory in those first couple when we started doing the, the shows and some some we were doing some local shows a couple before the tour and then we did that first tour it was Sepultura tour for me, and I was already a big Sepultura fan and this was on Chaos AD, so I got to see that every night. You know, I, I, get to know. I wish I could. Hanging, that's, a, that's a time machine. Yeah, show hanging, hanging with. That whole Sepultura camp, and that family, and that tour and stuff, get, getting to know them and stuff, and it was amazing. And then um, playing in Fear Factory every night, playing with the guys every night, especially like Raymond. Just, I mean, it's just so solid, it's so amazing, and like playing with him. And uh, that was a really fun tour. Yeah. And after that tour, they told me like, "Hey, we, we're unloading the pickup truck with the gear that we took off the off the off the tour bus or off the off the trailer." Somebody came picked us up in a pickup truck, and we're loading it at Dino's pad. And uh, as we're unloading, Dino goes, "Hey, by the way, you want to be in a band?" <laughs> I was like, "What? Yeah, you you want to you want the gig?" I'm like, "Fuck yeah!" So then I ran home, and I was like, "Fuck! Now I gotta figure out how to stay in the country." <laughs> That's how it was, because I was supposed to get back. How does college.
0: that How does that work with with? Uh you know you're because you came over here just with, with, with a, a visitor's waiver just for someone like who's
1: like on vacation or something yes and then um, what happened was somebody told me through the Biohazard camp somebody was like hey you should get an immigration lawyer I think it was Bruce I think I heard he just passed he was one of the tour managers for uh, around that time for, uh, for uh, Biohazard, and um I was like, yeah, you're right. So he gave me a number to someone. I contacted that person, and I think I paid that person like anywhere from like, I don't know, 8 to 10, 12 grand, something like that. And he helped me basically going through the process pretty easily. The only hard part was during the Simple Tour tour, I had to renew my visa. And the only way I could do that was stepping out of the country. So we were touring Texas. So I had to get on a flight on a day off, fly to uh, uh, El Paso, uh, get over, walk over the border and then stay in a hotel in Mexico which was like El Paso like uh, uh, Guadis right there El Guades, which is like fucking cartel city over there it's like super dangerous I've never still never been to Mexico <laughs> yeah, it's fucking dangerous out there um, a little white boy standing in, in line at 4am at the American Embassy and I'm telling you the line was like like when you go see through a rock concert around the block you know with all people like applying for visas and stuff like that to go into the United States and got my stamp. I was like, oh fuck, thank God. Get back over the border. Or the border they're checking me out. I'm like, you're good. Boom. I'll get that stamp. When you get that stamp and they go like that, you get just that relief. And I'm walking, I'm walking, okay. And I gotta get on a flight. So I get on that flight and I land in Houston and I was late for the show. So I get a taxi driving to the venue. I'm like telling the guy, hurry up, hurry up. So we get to the venue, and Fear Factor's standing on stage, and they're still doing that last Couple strums for the line check. Yeah. All right, ready. Do do. And I see Pat. What, was it where was the show? Uh, in Houston. So I had a fly into Houston from Juarez. Um, go back to immigration, all that get cleared to get to the show. Walk into the venue. See, I see Pat, our bass, our guitar tech. He's uh, one of the guys, singers in Brujeria. Yeah. He was with us doing guitar sardino. He's on stage, like ready to play. Like, ah, and they're about to kick into the first song, and they see me running. They're like, "Hey," and they wait. He takes the bass off, I ran on stage, I threw my shit down, he put the bass on me. Dun, 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 dun. That's funny. <laughs> It was like perfect fucking timing. But you're you're a citizen now? Yeah, I'm a I'm a legal resident. Legal re- resident.
0: Is that not a citizen?
1: No, it's not a citizen yet. Oh, I'm okay. actually working on that right now. Okay. I'm, I'm fine for Too my. Too bad Trump's
0: office, you're out, man. We got got to go, man. Sorry. Man, he, <laughs> I'm legal. No, you got to go. Sorry. You're out.
1: I'm a legal immigrant.
0: You're, you you got to go. Uh, <laughs> so, so, um, so how did everything end up kind of devolving this, you know, the second time around when, when it was the, the secondary lineup, you know, without Dino
1: during that reign, we were actually doing financially pretty well yeah because, uh, we were working really hard and, and just the way we were handling our business, we are trying to watch what we're spending. And so we were coming home with a lot more money and, um, even though, um, our manager at the time would only take 5%. And then a lot of times after the fact that we get paid first and then the management got paid if there was money left. Yeah. And you would never hear that. Every Managements usually get paid first. And oh. they take 20 to
0: 25%. Well, I don't think 25 is is uh, industry standard. And, stand and that usually. box
1: of 25,000 clips that I had to buy last week at Costco, you're paying for that too. Because yeah. they need a two for, to send your, uh, your paperwork to the consulate to get into the country or some shit. So, I, you know, so we were doing pretty well, and then everything just kind of changed. And me and Raymond woke up one day, and we got sued by yeah. by our former member, band member. And I don't still don't to this day. I still don't know why I got sued. You still haven't talked, um, not talked, talked much. to anybody. You still haven't talked no, to talk to Burton really. or Dino no, personally. Not really.
0: No, I mean, listen. I not, not, and I'll say this to any other members, you know, whether it's Burton, who I I see all the time, and he's always super nice, and I, I really like him. Yeah, we're you still know.
1: going through a huge legal battle with him, and it's, it's hopefully. Yeah. It's,
0: Dino, if Dino wants to come on the show and and give his, you know, talk talk about his his side, I definitely w- welcome him. I Doc Coyle begrudges no man; he is friends of, of all. <laughs> hey, I've been
1: trying to reach out and, and try to get this reunion thing happening, and you know, there would be nothing better for this band to to. Reconcile all those differences. Fucking write a killer record, which I know we can, and fucking we would be doing really big tours. My passion for playing and what we have invested in this band is 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 very big, and I know it's 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 really big for Dino as well because he started with Raymond back in the day, and um, we could do really good tours. I mean, we could probably go open up for Metallica on a whole entire run right now because they're bringing out this new record, and they would you know the impact of us reuniting and going out there and bringing out doing it with a good record could be you know and and it's sad that we haven't it's sad that we haven't gotten those phone calls yet does it um does it kind of bum you out that like the
0: business side of the music industry kind of tore apart what i I imagine at a certain point was a a pretty close-knit group of guys like that did you feel like you feel like the the money and the bickering and all that stuff this happens
1: with so many bands though yeah the same shit do you feel like it was it was i'm not talking about fear factory right now i'm just talking about bands out there that were one or two people decide like you know what there is there's money in this company there's money in this band we can just root out free the guys or the other guys and just hire people pay them nothing because we are so and so and there's people love in line waiting to play for us for yeah. for 500 dollars a week you know what i mean uh, for pds if we had to and you know and there's a lot of bands out there where you only see the singer that's the original member and he's holding it together because a lot of times unfortunately the singer is usually the one that can keep it together yeah. that's why i have tremendous respect for bands today that and you know some of these singers are tyrants too, and 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 the way they run their ship is like I run my ship the way I run it, and this and that. If you don't get the fuck out, if you don't like it, you know. And and I've seen many bands like that, but I do have respect for bands where, you know, like Machine Head. If it wasn't for Rob Flynn, that band would have been, you know, that he held held that band together for so long. I had to deal with all band band members switching out, and but at the end of the day, because he has such a strong personality and he's a a businessman and that's his band, that band is still around functioning like a really well oiled machine. And that's something I do miss about fear factory. Yeah. And I always felt like, you know, honestly, I say this, if, if you're a band out there and you have a singer that really knows how to run his business, they're successful. Give them, look at
0: Metallica, give them the keys. Well, the thing is, well, in but in many ways, you know, Lars is kind of the, at the, the the kind of the, the helm of the, i guess the vision so you don't think uh james could do it without lars no i think they understand that their collective leadership is what like is what leads leads the whole thing like even on the new record apparently lars and james kind of retook the writing helm and they kind of like you know whereas who
1: was doing it before (laughs) no 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 for
0: no for for really since like the black album they had it'd been a more collective type of experience where they were all kind of writing in the room and, and being very organic. Whereas the old days it was Lars and, and uh, James just doing it and then they bring everyone else. So they kind of went more back to the old school way of, of doing things. But, um, but no, it's, it's, it's funny you you, you talk about st- that stuff in terms of needing people, not needing people like me. I, th- I think in a, in a, in a way it's funny being in a band is like in one of the most political experiences you can have, right? Because it's the idea of, like, you know, some bands they run their band like a like a socialist, like everyone's equal. It doesn't matter, even though I do more, I you know maybe I write a little more, maybe I handle more business. We're all in this together yeah. because they decide the band works better that way, right? You know, well, it works like it works like that in the beginning. Well, no, then- no, 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 no. There's some bands to this day that that's how they, you know, that you know where it's you know. I'm sure the singer could go solo, but he he has decided and you hear people say this, they're like, Well, I I want to keep my band together and I believe the band is more important than just me. And then you have some bands, you know, to me, like if you're gonna go the way of it's my band and you guys are kind of hired members, like do like a Rob Zombie thing. Like Rob, he he didn't keep white zombie. And then kick everyone out and say, I'm the man. He went and started a new band and he's like, is, It's my band. It's the same and, thing. But yeah. Well, yes, yeah, so no It still has
1: zombie in it. But that's his name.
0: He was always he's he's Rob Zombie. You know, I mean but I
1: fucking hate that band.
0: You hate white zombie or Rob Both. Zombie? I never cra- like you,
1: that band. You crazy? you crazy. You crazy. You know what? I almost punched Rob Zombie out one time on tour. Yeah. That's wow. good for the podcast. We'll have that some is real, good. Let's yeah. start talking about some good shit on the show. Yeah. Who you t- tell about who you were. we were on tour with fucking White, Rob Zombie on tour. He took us on tour on obsolete. Great fucking tour. We're like super excited. White zombie or Rob, Rob Zombie? Rob Zombie? Okay. And uh their tour manager had tour managed us before as well. So we I knew their tour manager really well, Wookie. And Wookie's walking with Rob in a hallway. I'm swear to God, this hallway is only like five feet wide. It sounds like the danzi. So when we're, we're <laughs> like walking like past each other, we're rubbing elbows. Yeah. And we've been on tour with Rob Zombie for two weeks. I know he knows who I am, right? And, I, and he's walking towards me. And Wookiee's walking behind him, his tour manager. And I'm on the right side. And I stop to kind of let him pass, put my back against the wall to be mm-hmm. respectful and I just kind of like oh, rub shoulders. And I go, hey, nice to meet you. Stick take my hand out. Nice to meet you. I'm Christian with Fear Factory. Thanks for it. And as I'm trying to say that, he just ignores me and keeps walking. And he's not walking to the stage because this is like in the afternoon. And I stood there and I and I and I, I was so shocked. <laughs> and I looked at my hand. And they're still walking. I'm looking at my hand and I look over my left shoulder. And Wookiee, our tour manager, turned around and he's like sticking his hands out. Like, I'm sorry. Just don't worry about it. And because he sees me, I start fuming. He knows me. He knows me. I don't like I'll be like, I started fuming. I was like, <laughs> I walk to the bus I'm like That motherfucker And everyone's like What the fuck is your problem I'm like Fuck Rob Zombie Fucking <laughs> piece of shit Motherfucking Disrespecting me like that And then Wookiee walks on the bus Christian Cause he already knew I'm on the bus fuming he, Cause he toured with us An entire tour He knows me right He goes Dude Christian uh. I'm gonna go like, Wookiee goes Fuck that motherfucker Wait till I see him tomorrow I'm gonna punch him In the fucking mouth Right I started going off and he goes, uh, he tells me, Rob didn't mean it like that, Christian. He's just, I go, a fucking piece of shit, rock star, fuck that shit. So I guess he had gotten worth of something because I've, I've started running my mouth around backstage and stuff, so people. So then um, I guess some word had come back that getting kicked off the tour, something like that. And even Dean was like, oh, yeah, let's get kicked off the tour. That's just great promotion. <laughs> he, he started looking at it like that. I remember him saying that. He goes, and, and he goes, you don't want to get kicked off the tour. And everybody's like on the bus going, like, yeah, we want to get kicked off this tour. This would be great. <laughs> like, he's like, no. <laughs> it's like, you know, but at that time, 98, something around that time, if we would got kicked off that tour for that, it would have been great. I just, mean, we would have got so much press out of it. Yeah but we didn't back, get kicked back off when those.
0: feuds feuds mattered
1: because we were also managed by uh at that time maybe not anymore but for a t- the longest time we were managed by scott koenig yeah and they had biohazard so scott is like oh yeah i deal with this shit all the time my band gets kicked off so many tours and biohazard's always in brawls every night beating up some skinhead or something like that so so i'll
0: tell you see the, i always think about you is i feel like you should have been in the hardcore band because your your mentality you know what i'm saying this motherfucker I, demands respect. You know what I'm saying? I
1: don't demand it. No, no,
0: no, no. I'm saying you 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 might either whether you want to say demand, command. I'm saying just <laughs> that, It's like That's like if you think about half the hardcore songs, it's like yeah, yeah. you don't respect me. <laughs> 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 motherfucker, when I, just, I come through here, you need to know.
1: <laughs> I you know, I felt like And I've I've had that many times in the past, not many times. There's been a few times. One time, Henry Rollins kicked me off the stage and this was when I was still living in Belgium. Somehow I sneaked on the stage a little bit. And from the, from all the way from the corner, I was taking some shots. You were just some kid. With my camera. Yeah. Some kid. I, I love Rollins. So I'm taking some pictures of my camera and he sees me and he walks over as he's singing a song, grabs with my arm, pulls me on stage, keeps singing the song, and then starts walking me backstage and just kicks me out of the fucking back. And I'm standing backstage. There's nobody around. I'm like, what the fuck? He just kind of like threw me off stage. Are right? you still mad at Henry Rollins? Yeah. you look, still looking for him? Fuck him. All right. You know, Just hey, let me tell you something. Don't
0: disrespect. We're Christina. opening up a
1: Fear Factory for Black Sabbath. And I walk off stage. This is two shows we did on the Reunion Black Sabbath Tour in 1997. It was not a tour. They only did two shows. And it was two huge Black Sabbath shows, 25,000 people a night in Birmingham, their hometown. And Fear Factory was doing the two shows opening up. Brian May was there, like all these famous English people. And I'm walking off the stage, walking to the to the dressing room. Right after our show, and all of a sudden, this dude starts walking next to me. He's like, "Hey, man, great show!" And I look over; it's fucking Henry Rollins, and I'm like, "You are still mad?" No, I wanted to tell him, like, "Hey, remember back in the day?" <laughs> and I was like, That's "Never like, mind." I'll never, let slide. never,
0: never gets over it, man.
1: <laughs> but since he voted for Hillary, fuck him. See, see, this is the, this is what we can't. We are we're, did we're the the election special. We
0: can't. We can't get into it. It's gonna get real. It's gonna get real. Um, so. So you you think there is no chance, or maybe there's a chance of a of a Fear Factory re- reunion? I st-
1: I still feel like there might be a small chance, um, even though we have been uh, there's been some communication, but I'm me and Raymond don't really hold the cards, so they really have to come to us and be like, all right, let's make this happen. Let's now, let's can fix you, all this. Can, and- now
0: I've heard rumors. <laughs> is is it true that there is kind of some vested interests legally in them reuniting like it would make their lives easier as well is that true like is there legally like there were there are things in no in, comment no comment okay <laughs> all right. i assumed i assumed that was a no comment but you know I, I i for their sake i hope not well anyway but like i said i you know i, I this is not a platform to denigrate i just anyone. want to
1: play fucking music and it's really sad that all this bullshit prevents people from Doing what they love doing. And because that's why I came from this country, I wanted to play fucking music. I wanted to be on stage like every fucking night, no days off, that type of shit. And when you come home off a tour, it feels like fucking vacation. You know, you don't want to go anywhere. You just want to sit on your couch because that's your vacation. That's your, and I used to like that. And then you go back on tour, you go, you know, meet people, you go do what you love doing, and then you miss home terribly again. And then you come home and, and it's great. And it's fucking, you know what I mean? And, yeah, it's, it's, it's a cycle and all of a sudden twenty years are disappeared out of your life. And yeah. you're like, what the fuck just happened?
0: Yeah. It's it, well, we get institutionalized to that, to that uh you know, I, I, I toured earlier this year and I didn't toured in a while and was like, you know, it's like putting on an old pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. Like you haven't been on tour in a while, you're like, Oh, tour, this
1: is my this is my home. <laughs> yeah. This you is know. the bunk I always pick right here and you know
0: Yeah, and it was um, you know, it's it, it's it's just interesting to see how, how you get especially when you do it for long periods of time I and mean, you you know you toured for even longer than 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 i have but some people like they're just over it at a certain point they, they hate touring and then some of some of us are like lifers we're just like yeah this is how, how i want to live and this is this is what i enjoy well doing.
1: if 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 there's no fear factor reunion happen i'm definitely going to be back on tour next year i, I just finished the record with uh Sendog from cypress hill and he he's doing a metal band it's, yeah it's like hardcore metal hip-hop all infused and we just wrote like you know 14 songs or something He's going to put it out um, if he uh, is able to establish some some tours and some work. Is it just going to be called Send Dog? No, it's called Power Flow. Yeah. And um, it's uh, Send Dog, uh, Roy from Downset, Billy from Biohazard, uh, myself, and Fernando Schaefer, which is a drummer in Worst, Okay, a Brazilian band. Amazing drummer. Worst? Yeah. Yeah, i sir. And it. Um, and if there is uh, some tours, I mean, Prophets of Rage is going out next year. and There's been talk about... Powerflow being the opening band and also tim's band um so that might be some opportunity um but besides that i've been so you just talks. you just got you're getting over an injury right yeah I, I well i had a motorcycle accident almost almost three years ago well, in february but yeah pretty it, devastating right yeah it was pretty bad I, I i lost my leg pretty much at that point and i was able to still keep it and do a lot of physical therapy stuff like that and just I had a uh, air pocket in my heel that was never really uh, going away because of bad skin inside. That wasn't healing proper because there was so much damage. So I had to get that fixed a couple of weeks ago, like a month ago, and my toe from all the impact when everything healed was a little crooked, uncomfortable to walk. So I had it straightened, straightened my toe and that actually feels really good now and it looks good, but... Um so are you going to be okay
0: to perform?
1: Yeah. After a couple of weeks, I should be able to get get in the gym pretty hard and start putting a lot more support on my heel and and I'm trying to get all my strength back. And I I would think by uh, the beginning of next year or like January February, I should be getting I should be having all my my strength back. And sh- I, I won't be able jumping instead of doing stuff like that high, but on stage. But yeah, walking and, and, and performing and stuff because I did, I did a tour with dressing a couple yeah, months ago. Yeah, I was just gonna I was gonna say it. you were and you it was just fine, somewhere. but the. The my heel was tender and it was uncomfortable to walk. And you a were in, a, you guys were in a van. Yeah, we were in a van, and so it wasn't my walking was uncomfortable because some of the things I hadn't been able to to fix yet. Yeah. So now I just fixed those things. So now I'm just in that process of letting all this heal and get strengthening and get strong and then get in the gym and that should be fine. So because I might be joining another band, which I can't really say anything about, but it's a hardcore band, and I would be uh, playing bass and vocals. So um, I'm still working on that. Um, we haven't there's nothing final on it yet but I'm working with them and to see if it would be a good fit and if it if it will work out
0: yeah because uh, well you know I mean the title of this show is the x- man so it's it's about really the you know how how people like you and i who who come out of one situation and try and figure out what the hell we're gonna we're we're gonna do and, right. and one of the things that's really interesting about uh you for me is like you've done so many things like you played with Snoop Dogg you've played with uh you know all these different other projects outside of the the metal world you've been a producer like a lot of people know this uh Christian co produced the God forbid album Earth's Blood. Um he did all the the vocal stuff. Uh, we you know track some guitar solos. I produced,
1: I produced the arguments. <laughs> he was he was there
0: for the for the imminent demise. Uh, do you still have uh, that uh, the soccer glove company?
1: Yeah, well, because of my accident, I was running that company day to day, doing all the running around. Or what's that called? Aviata Sports. Yeah, and you um, still do that? I sold my company. I kept five percent, but I sold my company to my partner. My two partners they they picked up the tab for that and. Because I wasn't able to work, I had to basically live off uh, my 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 monthly uh, uh, payment I was getting from the company. Yeah. So I'm using that. So and um, I'm I have a couple other things um, in in the works, another business in the works, uh, and and a supplement thing as well. That is can't really say anything about yet. That's still um, so
0: many things you can't talk about. Yeah, man, there's a new guy. supplement company I'm going so to work, that I'm going to be
1: doing with uh, uh, my one of my partners from my uh, sports company. Who was actually a fucking multi millionaire, this guy, and always had his hands in cool things. He does a company called Torque, uh, which is a uh MMA fighter type of streetwear company. And uh he has a new product out that's gonna be uh could be very revolutionary as far as a supplement and it's perfect for musicians. Yeah. So it's something I wanna try to see if I can bring that into uh, uh, more like mainstream. And I I'm also working with something else. Hopefully uh this will be done um they, they just had meetings about it today it's a european company and uh they are a uh, a specialty cream um a tattoo cream and it comes from europe so it's tattoo care and suppose that this company is it's a pharmaceutical company and the products that they do they do a lot of lotions and stuff like that so they created a tattoo lotion that is a tattoo care that's from out of this world it's unbelievable what it does to tattoo healing and uh how it keeps color and all this stuff, and um, they're actually out of my hometown from Antwerp, so they reached out to me to become an ambassador for their company. So I might be working with them uh, on the U.S. level for, and they're a huge company because they own the Red Devils, which is the Belgian soccer team. Yeah, so they're, it's it's a lot of money. It's like one of those huge pharmacy companies. So,
0: so you really, in in terms of what. Uh... How you kind of figure out how to survive, you know, you're, you're someone who is more in the entrepreneurial kind of mindset in terms of, yeah,
1: I mean, I still think about maybe I should just go get a job somewhere, (laughs) um, which on the side for anybody out there that wants to do some gun instructor work. I, I, that's one thing that I'm, uh, um, getting that of getting as well is my NRA license.
0: You give gun and you teach other people how to shoot. Yeah.
1: I basically teach people how to correctly hold a pistol. Because eighty percent of the people out there, and I'm sure there's a lot of people listening, like, oh, I know how to shoot. I come from a family that owns one of the biggest weapon companies in the world called See? FN Herstal. Mm-hmm. My family, my godfather, owns a part of that company, and I have people that my family that own uh, Browning in Belgium, which is another big, huge uh, rifle company. Of course, yeah, and pistols. So I come from. As I was a kid, I was I had M16s next to my bed. My dad had an entire room of like fifty, sixty guns laying around. I've come from that type of environment. And I thought I could shoot until yeah. uh, a couple of years ago when I was at the range with um, a range. This is a place where I actually, uh, this is also a gun manufacturer called Buck Butler. He's the, one of the best shooters in the world. And I was at his range. That's where Keanu Reeves and Johnny Depp all go to train. If you look For on Facebook. Films. Yeah. There's a video of Keanu that went viral. Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. That's at the range. That's his backyard. That's my boss when I was working his backyard. And um, basically I, I, picked up a pistol and I held it and he goes can I show you a couple of things and show me how to hold it properly and I thought I knew how to hold it and no I did not know how to hold a gun and then I started becoming a little more aware of everything and the parts and the modifications and I got into the gun world because you know it's like you can like guitars but or you can get into guitars and, yeah. you know so I got into the gun world and I learned so much and that it's the fundamentals of knowing how and what to do and how to draw and, and, and what to carry and how to carry it and what caliber to carry and all those things. All those fundamentals are so important that there's so many people out there, 80% of the people out there don't know how to properly shoot. You mean that, people who
0: are going on Who, who, un- who already gun own guns, yeah. yeah.
1: And when I was at those ranges, I saw sheriffs come in, sheriff's departments, and the way they were shooting, I was just like, oh, my God. And my boss looked at me, he goes, he goes yeah about 70 80% of law enforcement don't even know how to shoot. So I I have, I have
0: a question and I'm you know this coming from not a gun guy at at all. Um do you think there should be like a should you have to train to be able to get a gun? Do you think? I Should there be like certain requirements in terms of being able to handle handle it?
1: No, I don't think so, but I think it should be like I mean Yeah, but what, you have to, if you go if you go to the gun store tomorrow and you go buy a gun, you have to uh, perform a safety test. And they will show you the safety test in front of you, uh-huh. and then give you the pistol with a with a fake round, which is like a like a like a like a dummy bullet. Mm-hmm. And they'll tell you here: put that round in the chamber, put that, uh, clock it, then dismantle the, take out the magazine. You know, they'll tell you all that. They'll show it to you how to do it, and then you have to do it in front of them. And if you pass that test, you get your certificate that you have. Fulfilled the safety test, which it, it seems weird requires. though that it's harder to get a driver's license <laughs> <laughs> than it, <is. laughs> it is to get a gun. Well, a, a driver's license, a car is a weapon as well.
0: I mean, exactly. Can, well, so yeah, just about. I mean, about the same amount of people die and each year from cars and the the, the
1: the. Hopefully, with uh, this new office in place, hopefully the 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 restrictions on people with uh, mental illnesses and just like, that are crazy getting their hands on pistols because it is pretty easy. To get a gun in this country and especially for crazy people look what happened to dime that dude did not should not had a fucking gun his mom bought him that gun that guy was fucking crazy and the 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 background checkups hopefully will be fixed because that's the biggest problem it's backup background checks but yeah well they you know from what i
0: what i know you know most americans support uh, background checks but uh i support it too but yeah yeah, but the uh, doesn't nra doesn't want any any regulations right
1: you know, um, I think there should be some form of, you know, when, if, you know, if I buy a house, don't they do a background check for me to see if I have money? Yeah. You know, they right? should do background checks. The bank checks. does, right? You, they should do background checks on you buying children. You well, well,
0: yeah, if you get, um, yeah, why, you why, adopt. Why, why yeah. should
1: it be allowed for you to have kids left and right with no proof of steady income, no proof that you are actually capable or mentally stable to take care of this child? Well, then that That's why that this way. world is so fucked up. Now we well, are getting into a whole other thing, Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, can can it's worms almost for sure. like it's it's almost the same thing. It shows its responsibility. Yeah. You know, you should you have to show responsibility to buy a house, to buy a car, to buy a car. I mean, they fucking pull you through the ringer to all these checks and your credit reports and all this to make sure what, What's the big deal if I can't pay for the car? You're just going to come and take it anyway. Yeah. What does it matter, you know what I mean? So I think uh Responsibility for owning a gun, there should be. There should be. You know, you, sh- you should be have to have to prove that you're responsible. That you're because when I carry a gun, um, you, I have, that, you have a
0: carry permit.
1: No, I don't. Um, but if you get busted with and you don't have a carry permit, you get a misdemeanor. Yeah. Um, and they don't have carry in 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 California. They do. Los Angeles County does not. Um, give out CCWs. But outside of Los Angeles County, if you go to San Bernardino, you can go to the Sheriff's Department, apply for the CCW. You can go to Riverside County, apply for the CCW, Ventura County. But not Los Angeles County. Mm. So if I live in Ventura County, yes, I can have a CCW. Right on. But, you know, it's... uh, I've been robbed on tour one time with a gun against my head and the guy pulled the trigger. This was like during the the de recordings. I mean, nobody really knows about this. I, I was held up in a car for three hours with a gun against the back of my head. I went to pick a bird from a train station, which he never showed. And I got robbed, put host- got host- held hostage in this car, tried to get money out of ATMs. And then the guy was like, fuck this. Dropped me off in the worst neighborhood in Poughkeepsie, in the ghetto in Poughkeepsie. Put the gun against my head. And I go, fuck you. And it pulled the trigger, and that shit misfired. <laughs> so you're scarred. Not really scarred. I just wish I would have been fucking armed that day. Yeah, because I would have dropped this guy before he would even be able to pull all that shit with me I would have shot I would have just drawn like this and just shot him like 50 times through the fucking seat to the back you know what I mean and he would have never even known because he was sitting behind me with a, with a hood over his shoulder with a gun against the back of my head when when I was driving in the, in the driver's seat and he was right behind me in the passenger seat in the back seat and he was trying to rob me for my money I saw a rental car Poughkeepsie Poughkeepsie is not the greatest neighborhood oh yeah I know so, you know, um, so when he couldn't get money, this and that, he just tried to finish me off, and then he kind of panicked because his gun didn't fire properly. Uh, the bullet got stuck in the barrel. Because I have go to the range all the time, I had it happen. Sometimes you have that one round, or when the rounds, when bullets have been sitting in a gun for years and years and years, they just kind of go bad, or the primer can loosen up, and you know, so it doesn't, it doesn't charge proper. And that's what happened so and and i had to jump over a barbed wire fence to get the keys back because he took the keys out of my ignition and threw them over a barbed wire fence which i saw going i jumped out of the car jumped over the fence and by the time i got back over the fence i was like torn up because of this razor wire barbed wire. and all the other gang members in the projects were selling drugs in the corner this is like one o'clock in the morning they saw me getting robbed and, and they came towards me trying to finish me off and when I got back in the car, I put the key in the ignition. I was bleeding all over the place, and I peeled out with the car doors in the back open. <laughs> and the one guy was hanging on him, when I peeled out. I got back to the studio. They were like, what the fuck happened to you? Jesus. I just got robbed. I almost, I almost got shot. Well,
0: I've been, I've been robbed at gunpoint, too. And it uh, wasn't fun, but uh, thankfully, I was not
1: held hostage or, or almost uh, shot. Almost if you shot. would have been carrying a concealed, you think you would have dropped that dude? Uh, would there be a chance?
0: No, I was like kids. They were like yeah, they, oh, were, make, they were uh, just, they were just there was young punks. You know, I was like, but it was like a time when I was like just so broke. I think I literally had like eighty dollars in my wallet, and I was like, <laughs> all like the money I it? had. Yeah, and I, I, was just, <laughs> I was just, I was just, I was just mad. Um, but you know, it's uh, I don't know. My, my kind of philosophy on on things, I think, is a little bit different. Um, you know, I think obviously you know people w- when you get involved in a scenario that's uh really kind of traumatizing something something like that then that affects you and you you know you're in a sense you're um you know you might have you know a post traumatic stress that kind of triggers you right for, yeah, you know always, from, it's, from it's, where yeah. where where that that fear response but the truth is that's not going to happen to 95% of people no. um something of that of that magnitude but the truth is we do we do face danger, you know, and I, and I think, um, you know, we're kind of in this, I think in, 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 America, especially, you know, like you have a, a generation of kids who grew up playing shooter video games and watching action movies and, and people kind of
1: fantasize about, I was event. running around like that with a kid with a little revolver. Cause I saw a John Wayne movie.
0: Yeah. well, yeah, but it's like, look at the movies that are, it's like, uh, you know, taken, you know, Oh, I have a set of skills. You know, you go and you kill the mm-hmm. bad guys. John Wick, The Equalizer. It's like almost like a revenge. Um, you know, the the idea of the kind of lone. Super super guy who's who's gonna go and, and kill all the bad the bad guys and I
1: think but women, uh, women getting kidnapped like in Taken that is no joke that well, is that is a huge business in Europe no I I get that but the and likelihood shit is real but the likelihood that
0: your uh, secret agent father is gonna go and, and that's, kill that's a no no that's a hun- why a hundred I, that's
1: why I teach women out, well not in Europe but out here how to properly shoot and now all of a sudden oh, I want to purchase a gun so I get them to pick the right pistol for them not all this crap that's out there that's super hard to something simple, something that they know, that's something that's like, it's like grabbing your phone and opening a password. You become like one with it and you have to really like connect with what you're holstering and stuff and really be in an understanding. Like, look, I might have to defend, it'll never, hopefully it will never happen, but one day either I might have to defend myself for my own safety or my own well-being or I'm going to save somebody else's life. Well, that's... A-
0: you know, and I and I think that's the the kind of the question mark is about a how much time do you spend uh, your mental kind of energy on the yeah the, you the, do. the, the, the potential scenario you do because when you, you strap
1: that on you think about that
0: but that's but that's part of my point is I don't really think about that stuff you know yeah. and I and I you know I grew up in a city you know was wasn't the worst ghetto or anything but it was you know it was an urban environment and you you kind of you know you develop those spider senses of like, okay, you can kind of feel this, this street, this block is a little shady and you, somebody starts walking behind you like you "Hmm." learn. Yeah. You learn, you know, and I, you know, and I I would get punked out and have dudes kind of fuck with me. Um, but you kind of learn that. All right, be aware of your environment. See, see what's going on. Uh, but I've definitely never been in a scenario where I'm like, I need a gun. I need this. Me and you
1: both grew up in neighborhoods where there's no, Guns carry laws that you can't carry any guns, you grew up in New York or new jersey I
0: grew up in, in in New jersey yeah
1: yeah, so there's no no guns there they're really strict i mean it's not like we grew up in Texas or arizona or or any another like you know in the midwest where gun laws are very part of the of well, law. yeah i mean to me and, i think I,
0: I think there's a Distinct uh, lifestyle difference you have uh, hunting cultures and you also have just the general idea of there's not as many people around and When you live in a rural environment and let's say there is some type of crime on your property The truth is the the police are not nearby it's uh the the you know so people people are a lot police is a response team well exactly so so they're not um they they have to in a way they have to be more self
1: reliant yeah they're not uh, they're not there to prevent the yeah crime. and
0: and and the truth is urban environments are a lot more there's just obviously bad things happen but you know if you look at the data crime has been falling for thirty years in this country violent crime has been falling. And, Not in Chicago. <laughs>
1: well, yes, but but the thing 37 is, thirty-seven over that last weekend when the elections were, thirty-seven people got shot.
0: I understand that, but you can But you also can't. You know, that's called a, a sampling error, where you take one incidence, and you know that's going against the trend, but it's still an anomaly. Um, and the truth is, if you if you absorb information that is scary, and if you sit there and just watch, that's all you do is watch what's going on in Chicago. You don't live in Chicago. You live here. You know, if I live in the middle of Kansas somewhere and all I do is watch the footage of what's going on in Afghanistan and Syria, then yet fills your brain and it makes you think that that's the world. But, the, you know, th- that is part of the world. You know, you go watch some footage of what's going on in, you know, Finland or something. It's just some people hanging out in the park, you know, like getting drunk. I'm just saying it's not, you know, if, if you overload yourself with nothing but the worst things happening in the world, you know, your, your perspective is going to be skewed. You know, so you can't. You know, the truth is, we have more access to know what's going on, and and many segments of the media have a uh, have an incentive to show you the most scary stuff because that's what's going to keep you uh, tuned in. Think think about people. What what do we do? We go, you know, we go skydiving. We go to on a uh, 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 what's it it called? roller coasters we go you know we go watch walking dead 50 times like we we actually are addicted to this idea of danger all right and and there's something about oh there's this you know being connected to what is the most dangerous thing and having an enemy and have some well this is the evil over here and this you know and and you know you can actually design how your perception of the world? You can shut all that shit off. You can turn off the CNN, You can t- turn off Twitter, and you don't, you wouldn't see. You wouldn't know what's going on. Yeah. You know, back in the day, if you didn't, if it didn't happen in your area, and if it wasn't on your local news and in oh, your you local paper, paper yeah. you know, cable news changed everything. When all of a sudden, some little girl would get kidnapped in Ohio somewhere, and you lived halfway across the country, then that became your news. But it's not. This is a big country. It, this country is absurdly large you know and the fact that we embody something that happened halfway yeah. across the, the country like it's here is very unhealthy in my opinion and and people are overindulging in this uh you know these you know this level of fear i used to you know when i was a kid i don't know you was we you would just go out all day you would leave mm-hmm. in the beginning of the day and come back at night and no one would look for you and you weren't as you, your fear did not dominate people's uh Headspace as much as it does. If they were
1: showing the news all the shit that happens in one night in Los Angeles, all the the people who died or the shit that people got hit, they'll just sometimes pick one story, right, and put it on the news. But they don't tell you 99 of the shit that goes on. I mean, they'll show you some bad stuff. Oh, there's fucking some guy got hit on the freeway. Oh, there's a fire right here. Oh, last night here, this guy got shot. But that's it. And they move on to their other stories. I flew in a helicopter one night with the LAPD, a buddy of mine was a pilot. He goes, hey, you want to go for a ride? Sure, I go, I'll fly the chopper. So I flew in the chopper, and we responded in three hours because they fly for three hours, and then they take a break. And then they, uh, hour break, and then they fly for three hours again. And that's their shift. And uh, in that first three hours, we responded to like seven murders there was a people I remember there was one uh, murder in like South Central or Compton or something the people they're having picnic you see people sitting on a picnic table and there's like a body laying like 30 feet from 30 meters something like that from them and they weren't even phased. they just kept doing their picnic because they didn't didn't want to be disturbed choppers just circling over on top we're just looking at this on the radar I'm like I'm like fuck oh there's another call the chopper flies to another location another murder somebody got shot in a house and then the next day, I watched the news, waiting to see some of these stories on the news that I've seen last night. None of them were on the news, and I'm like, "Wait a minute."
0: Well, yeah, that, well, that's but that's part of it. They generally a don't cover black on black crime, you know, in the inner city. It's it's just
1: it's just like people it, don't. It really, really showed me really like I'm like wow they didn't
0: you know and, and but but you have to keep in mind too the even in South Central the crime rate is. Minuscule compared to what it was there in the murder rate back in the in the early nineties. So they've made drastic, drastic improvements. And if you the thing is, you can't just like I said, numbers matter, but context matters more, right? So if you have X amount of murders, but you you have to understand this is the second biggest populace in the country. This is the you know California is the sixth biggest economy in the world. There are so many people here that. You know, based on that, you have to understand that there's just going to be there's just going to be X amount of murders and, and X amount of. There's
1: about twenty to fifty carjackings here a day, a night, in twenty four hours.
0: I have to Google that. It's true. Well, we'll I see. Mean, I mean,
1: you just ask uh, if you know somebody in law enforcement, just ask them. All
0: right. Well, I, I'll, I'll. Hopefully, the numbers are are. There's huge
1: crime rings that do that. That's that's their business. Yeah. They they jack you on gunpoint because they need your fob your key, which all the new expensive luxury cars have come with these special keys. And you cannot get these keys. If you, if you rob a car, you need that key. Otherwise the car is useless and worthless. And a lot of these cars are getting shipped to West Africa, Ghana. Ghana is one of the but biggest, yes, don't biggest all the, ports. Now don't the all world. the
0: new cars have GPS. Can't they find the cars in like five minutes?
1: They have people that are so sophisticated that, that work for some of these companies that built these navigation systems that work for these crime rings, that have little like little computer things on held. They stick a straight, they go into your car, they stick that thing straight into the, the chip underneath the dashboard. They unlock, they reset the entire car, they can't find it. All They have all the techniques. It's insane. I talked to someone, told me everything about it. There's it's a crime ring that's massive here. Mm-hmm. And most of the cars go to West Africa, Ghana. That's where they fucking buy. They buy luxury cars like crazy. And they, they go straight into the containers and get shipped out. I'm like, how is that even possible still? And he goes, yeah, like between 25 and 50 cars a night that get stolen in L.A. And there's people that well, will sto- you. stolen you. Well, stolen, before you just said carjacking. Yeah, those carjackings are to get the cars.
0: No, no, but I'm saying is it stolen? A, a car getting stolen on the street or in a parking lot is a big difference than a carjacking.
1: They, they do the carjacking because they need the fob. Yeah. They need your key. So they need you to be in the car. They follow you. You right? they wait for the right time and they jack you it's a huge business and I tell people that sometimes they're like huh oh I think that just hand, ha- happens randomly maybe like once a week somebody gets carjacked I'm like no there's like 25 to 50 well, a day I would I would go on the Google I'm going to Google this guys we that's got, why, we have, we that's why up- because the gun world because I'm so heavily into the gun world there's a lot I talk to a lot of people we all carry concealed a lot of people my friends carry concealed in cars have special uh, holsters built into their car where their gun is sitting right next to them even though that's illegal uh no it's not i illegal. have a lot of friends here that have ccws and they one of my friends but i thought was, you
0: said that that didn't work in la county
1: if you live outside of la county you can obtain a gun license so then then it works in yeah you in can drive LA. into la county and just be like you know, sure have it. yeah okay they don't care
0: okay well i'll say you know what did not think we were going to get into this subject matter. You know, got got a little got a little grim, got a little <laughs> serious. Uh, uh, you know, you know. It's,
1: it's it's all part of life. It is it is part of life, and I am able to protect yourself and your family is very important.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, definitely is, and
1: and, I, and will, I would even I would throw myself in some of the. I didn't if I, hey, if I walked into the grocery store tomorrow, and I was carrying concealed, and that place is getting robbed at gunpoint by some crazy lunatic with a shotgun or whatever. I will put myself in harm's way in front of people to to to, to save the day. I mean, I, I wouldn't do it as, you know, you have to do it proper and the right time. You can't just like, But you, know,
0: you do know there's, you know, they've done studies into this and there's, it really just doesn't happen very often.
1: You can go on Google and look at all the, uh, I did it the other day. I started looking at a whole bunch of scenarios that are captured on cameras Mm-mm. of scenarios where people came in to rob the place and there was a CCW holder inside that. Place and like in boogie nights, yeah. when the guy's looking for the donuts, and the guy's like robbing the place, and he gets shot by that big 44 Magnum with that dude sitting on the table. But and it's... there's a bunch of scenarios I kept looking at them on YouTube, and there was one in a, in a barbershop where a guy had his had, was concealed underneath his rope on their barber rope that he's sitting there. And there's two people robbing the barbershop, and he just draws, he shoots one guy, boom, he drops, and he shoots the other guy. But what I'm
0: saying is, even though I'm sure it does happen, it's still the the rare scenario, and it's uh, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, no, but it also opens up to the fact, you know, if you're in a let's say you're in, you know, like that, uh, the shooting that happened in the movie theater uh, where it's dark. How do you tell who you're shooting? Like, there's a, there's a, a very strong possibility you're, you're going to shoot the wrong person, vice versa. It's just a, I I get the impulse, but it's it's also. You know, it's it's difficult to tell who, um, you know, how those situations are going to are going to end up. You know, so I I don't know. I just I I think the the impulse is, is good, but I think they're you know we we have to. This is not the Wild West. Well, but if you, you know. carry,
1: you have to know that you have that responsibility to make sure that you conduct yourself, you train yourself, you know what you're doing. If you carry that, don't carry a gun if you don't know. Well,
0: you can train yourself, but you're not. In the military. Look, if, if you were not-
1: if you were previously in the military and you're a civilian and you carry, and you have that instinct because you were a door kicker for maybe like five tours in in, in Iraq, and you were the first one getting shot at every time you kicked in a door, and you're in the movie theater with your wife and you're strapping, and all of a sudden there's a shooting in, inside the theater, that person is going to look where the flashbangs are coming from, where he sees the fire coming from, who's getting dropped, he's not going to just pick, holster his uh, unholster his gun and start firing in, in the in the in, in the in the in the theater, he's actually going to pick out where the the danger is coming from. Well, we don't know, we don't know who they, but this is. A this is a, a fictionalized we, person. You would jump behind a, the the first fucking chair that you could find. You lay down. You grab your gun, and you'd be trying to figure out where is this coming from. You know what I mean? You got to use your ears, your eyes. And that's, yeah, but
0: that's also assuming that people people don't panic, and, and that, everybody's going to be panicking. But that's what that's my that that's my point. I think in in this scenario, in the in your head, it's like. Oh, it's this guy. He's calm and cool, and he's not freaking out. And there's
1: if you can stay calm and cool, you can save the day. If yeah, but that's why you have why you have to train to be able to keep that. But if you don't train, you'll never be able to keep calm and cool. You'll be like, (laughs) of course, yeah, yeah. But if you train, and it's just like when you play guitar, you can be super distracted look at girls in the crowd have a beer have a shot and you can still be sitting there going blah, 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 play exactly the notes because you're so trained on that yeah you know it's it's oh, don't, don't, don't don't distract me i'm I'm about to play this riff right now you know this it's not really like that you're just like oh well, what's going on you could be talking to people and it's kind of like that you have to be um you're know, you gonna know what you're doing and and you can't be just playing cowboy that's for sure
0: yeah we definitely want to try and avoid that but uh Anyway, man, I think, I think, you know what, I had all these questions I didn't even get, get to. That's how I do. I always I over-prepare, and we ended up kind of talking about some other subjects. But um, no, man, I really appreciate you uh, coming on and, you know, and giving your story. You know, And I, and I think was, we could probably do this again, because I feel like <laughs> there's a lot more we <laughs> yeah, could, I mean, we could talk about.
1: Let's talk about things that I'm passionate about, and you know, that is uh, guns, guitars, french fries. French fries, yes. Poobie. What else? What else did we used to eat at my fucking house when you guys were recording there? Shepherd's pie, that's all I remember. You really? What yeah. about when we used to go to that Mexican joint and make all those fucking burritos and those steaks?
0: That's true. You did make a mean mean burrito. <laughs> that sounds so gay. But anyway, man, thanks again for, for being on and uh, get those burritos, you know. it's uh, Stay safe out there. Watch out for the uh, the, the 50, 50 to 40 carjackings a night. And uh, definitely. All right, man. Lock I'll talk- your doors. Like yeah this is the safety podcast. <laughs> Thanks brother. Later. Due to the graphic nature of this program, listener discretion is advised. So that was our conversation with Mr. Christian Oldie Wilbers. want to thank him again for coming on and really having some awesome stories and, and really opening up. That was great uh, to address some of the statistical things we mentioned at the end. I did go to the old Google. And here's the thing. They don't at least they don't make it public where I could find it Uh to find actual carjacking statistics. What I could find was auto theft statistics. So he is actually, if you were to look at actual auto thefts, in Los Angeles there are close to 38 per day in all of Los Angeles. But keep that in mind, that is in a city of 4 million people. And for some better context, um, I went to city cityslashdata.com which has all of the crime statistics uh, for Los Angeles since 2002. In 2002, there were 34,000 car thefts in Los Angeles. And by the time 2014 came along, there were less than 14,000. So auto thefts and really all crimes are less than half of what they used to be in only about 15 years. But I also saw that crime rates, including violent crimes, have gone up both in 2015 and 2016, but overall crime rates are down. So yes, there are many car thefts, but I think carjacking is a much less uh, common occurrence and carjacking itself is obviously a much more invasive and crazy type of crime and more fearful. You know, it's, it's one thing where your physical danger is more at risk. So. I think that impact is, and the difference between the two, I think is pretty monumental. So, anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. And without further ado, Mamba out.